The reading today is from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that involves all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rachel. Well, the royal family are in the headlines rather a lot at the moment, aren't they? Uh, They can't seem to keep out of it. And I have uh, no idea whether anybody here has already bought or plans to buy Harry's book. Uh, But I'll bet everybody here, judging by the numbers, everybody here watched his grandmother's funeral. Four billion or so did. And her death was one of those rare moments where uh, the reality of death moved from the, the peripheral shadows and we were confronted as a culture with death in a way that we rarely are. And amidst all the, the pomp and the ceremony, um, and it's great to see something we do well as a country, every now and then it's just nice to say, okay, an awful lot may be uh, struggling at the moment, but we can do this, we can do this. The, you know, I mean, the impressive perfection of the immaculately rehearsed bearer party. But I wonder if you noticed, perhaps the most striking feature of the whole event was the readings, the words of the readings. So easy to miss them amidst everything else that was happening. But the Queen had chosen these words to be read as her dead, rotting body was carried into the chapel. The reading said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And in these few minutes, I just want to think about the the hope that Jesus brings, a hope that not even death can extinguish. And it is a hope that every single person here needs. Uh, The reading that we just had comes from the book of Isaiah. It was written about 700 years before Jesus' life, death and resurrection. But God revealed to his prophet Isaiah what would happen when his Messiah, his promised king, came and restored all things. And there's three things we learn. We learn um, God is preparing a feast for us to eat. God has eaten death for us. And those who trust in God will be full of joy. So it's the beginning of the year. We're all uh, looking at our to-do lists. We're all writing down, you know, not resolutions, they're terrible, you can break them. Uh, aspirations, progress, hopes for progress. You see, you can keep going with that, no matter how badly you fail. But uh, what's God doing? What's on, his, what's on his to-do list for the next, I don't know, how long it will take before he comes back? Well, it's to make a serious feast. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And this is not a Christian feast. This isn't sort of cocktail sticks with cheese and pineapple and some quiche and slightly flat diet coke. 
and non-alcoholic grape juice for those who partake. This is vintage Chateau Margaux. This is fillet steak. This is Christmas lunch at a Michelin three-star restaurant. It's rich, it's generous, it's abundant. And on this mountain, which is figuratively the place where God rules, all people are welcome. All, all the things that we divide over down here have been torn down. There's no racial distinction as if, well, this is only for white people. There's no educational standard. Of, well, you've got to have a degree to be welcome here. It doesn't divide over party lines. It doesn't even divide on moral requirements as if only the squeaky clean can come in. Actually, everyone and anyone who receives God's offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ will be present on God's mountain to enjoy God's feast. And we need, therefore, to rid ourselves of the mental image of a killjoy God who is always turning wine into water and laughter into silence and colour into grey. He's got restrictive rules and unreasonable demands, the headmaster in the sky that put me off Christianity as a teenager. This is a God of abundant generosity, of richness and of joy. I think we forget, when Jesus was on earth and he wanted to help us get our heads around what it would be like if we put our trust in him and we joined God in his remade paradise world, what even will that be like? He said, let me give you a picture. Turned up to a wedding that had run dry and transformed 600 litres of dishwater into vintage wine. Now he did say, to be a Christian is to take up our cross and follow him. But we mustn't forget that the self-denial the difficulties, the opposition, those things are temporary. They have an end date stamped on them. And even now, it is the best way to live. But heaven will not be boring. It will not be an eternity fluttering around as wispy spirits playing harps. It's going to be a raucous, noisy banquet. Roaring laughter of happy crowds of all kinds of people. Tables literally groaning under the weight of wine and well-aged steak, of strawberries and champagne, and for those with my sophisticated palate, pizza and ice cream, I very much hope. But interestingly, in this passage, what makes this feast so special, so extraordinary, so unlike even the best feast you've ever eaten here on earth, is not what we will consume, but what God eats himself. God has eaten death. For us. Verse 7, on this mountain, he, that is God, will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In J.M. Barry's great story, Peter Pan, Captain Hook, the villain, is followed everywhere he goes by a great terrifying crocodile it bit off his hand and now it wants the rest of him having got a taste for his flesh but in the story the crocodile has also swallowed an alarm clock and so wherever it goes you can hear tick tock tick tock tick tock warning him of the crocodile's approach but he knows at some point the clock will run down and there'll be no warning and he'll be swallowed up, devoured, eaten. 
And death stalks every one of us like Hook's crocodile. The clock is ticking for each of us. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. And none of us knows when our clock will run down and we will be devoured. But that shadow hangs over each one of us at the start of this year. And none of us can resist death's embrace. But God will not let death have the last word in his creation. He will swallow up death forever. He will destroy the shroud that enfolds us all. Now what does it mean though to say God swallows up death? It's just a very strange phrase. And to answer it we have to go back to the very beginning. Ever since Adam turned his back on God, every human, well we've followed his path. We live in God's world but we ignore our creator. We use other people rather than loving and serving them. We turn our backs on the God who is the source of life. And because of that, our inevitable destiny is eternal death. Separation from God forever. And physical death is really just a bitter foretaste of the real death. To be, exist but be cut off from God. And Jesus came to deal with this. You see this actually on the night before Jesus dies... If you remember, he's kneeling in a garden, praying in anguish. And his prayer is, he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. It's an odd thing. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What does he mean by take this cup? Well, the cup is an image in the Old Testament, a metaphor for the rightful, wrathful judgment of God. So Psalm 75, one of many places, tells us, It is God who judges. In the hand of the Lord is a cup. Full of foaming wine mixed with spices, he pours it out, and the wicked of the earth drink it down to its dregs. The cup is God's judgment. Death is, is, is not horrifying just because it is death, the end for us. The real terror is it's the judgment of God upon us. The judgment of the God who's rightly angry at selfishness and pride and bigotry and abuse and greed, and violence. And when Jesus went to the cross, he was swallowing that judgment, that punishment for us. Not with us, identifying with humans, but for us, in our place. He drank that cup so that you don't need to. Actually, you see this in Peter Pan as well. Uh, Peter's enemies have poisoned a cup he's going to drink, but Tinkerbell the fairy knows it's going to happen, and as Peter tips back the cup, Tinkerbell flies in front, and she drains it down and dies in his place. It's not a perfect illustration, but the key point it shows. At the cross, Jesus swallowed your judgment, your death, so that you don't need to. If you like, he swallowed death so that you and I don't need to be swallowed up by death. And three days later, he rose. Death could not swallow him. And so if we trust in Jesus, then the power of his life is available to us. Here is the one who can bring you safely through death, because he's been through death and come out the other side. And we get some idea of uh, what does that mean? What will it look like to, to be taken through death by him? It says, he will wipe away the tears from all faces, he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Do you see how strikingly personal that is? It could just say, with death gone, there will be no more crying. But it doesn't. 
It's individual. It says, he will wipe the tears from each face. Now what that means is that life then won't be like life now. It's not just that death has gone, but everything that causes pain, everything that causes shame, everything that causes misery, everything that brings guilt, all of it will be gone in God's new creation. God's remade world will be a place of laughter and adventure and excitement and fulfilment and peace and fun. And God will personally see to it, individually, for every single one of us. That's the heart of Christianity. The message that on a particular day in history, Jesus swallowed death for you, so that you might enjoy paradise with him for all of eternity. And that power of resurrection life has already been released. It's already at work in this world now. It's available to us as we struggle and need resurrection in dead marriages, in dead friendships, in dead family relationships, in dysfunctional places of work, in our battles with ingrained destructive habits and sinful addictions. Now things will not be perfect in this world until the Lord Jesus returns and transforms everything. But already his resurrection power is available to us, making new things new, making all things new, bringing real meaningful hope to the darkest, most difficult situations that you face this year. Now, of course, all of that does rather hinge on the claim that on Easter Sunday, around 2,000 years ago, Jesus actually rose physically from the grave. Now, I couldn't hope to convince a genuine, rational, sceptical inquirer in two minutes that it happened. But uh, if that is a question you've got, I would love to recommend some, some books that go into much more historical detail than I could do right now. But let me give you a very brief acronym. EAR. E-A-R. EAR. E, empty tomb. It's an undeniable fact of history. The tomb was empty. No one ever produced the body of Jesus. A, appearances. 500 people over the span of 40 days, claimed to have seen him alive, and not one of them went back on that. People will often be willing to die for things they believe to be true. Very, very few people are ever willing to die for what they know not to be true. And yet all of them were convinced they'd seen him alive. And then, ah, oh, the rise of Christianity. It is just very difficult to explain how this sect with a dead leader took over the world unless Jesus rose. But do, do chat to me afterwards if that's a question. Um, but lastly, back in Isaiah, those who trust in God will rejoice. Those who trust in God will rejoice. I don't know what life is like for any of you right now, but I do know if you're a normal group of people, that there'll be many of you for whom it's not easy. And if you're honest, the concept of a loving God feels a big stretch, given the circumstances of your life. But then the day will come when if you trust in Jesus, God will wipe the tears away and show you to your seat at the table. And you'll smell the food of the banquet. You'll see the faces of the people with you and feel the first warm rays of the sunshine of the new creation on your back. And you'll look at the scars in Jesus' hands as he serves the food and sing for joy, exclaiming, Surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. 
let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I wonder though if the greatest joy, which is hinted at here, will be seeing God's delight in us. I think the thing that struck me reading uh, these verses I prepared this week is what they say about God's attitude to you and me. How does God feel as he prepares for the day when history ends and he makes all things new? Well, it starts with a feast, a wedding banquet. Because for God, it is a day of joyful celebration when he welcomes you into his new creation. Uh, there, wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't a lot to enjoy about lockdown, let's be honest, um, for most of us. I had a friend who uh, was able to work remotely and um, his screensaver changed to, uh, the backdrop in his Zoom calls changed to Barbados um, for six months and uh, wrestling um, some traumatised toddlers. Uh, the, uh, yeah, he was having a pretty good time actually looking at his beach backdrop. But for most of us, there wasn't much to enjoy about lockdown. But I did love some of the reports that came out. There was, uh, my favourite was Emma Smith's dog. Apparently this was quite a common thing. Uh, a few days into the first lockdown, she noticed that her seven-year-old dachshund named Rollo couldn't wag its tail and was in some distress and phoned the vet and the vet said, ah, yes, in common with a lot of dogs, he's so excited that you're around all day every day that he has um, dislocated his tail by wagging it so furiously with happiness. Now, (laughs) uh, forgive me if it is blasphemous to liken God to that dog, but God is so excited. He is so excited by the prospect of you and me being with him for all eternity, that he has prepared a great feast. Because it's a joyous thing. It's a delightful thing. It is what he is planning. It is what all of history is moving towards for God, is welcoming you into his eternal kingdom. No wonder we'll rejoice on that day when we're in his presence. Uh, the, The news, of course, has moved from saturation coverage of the Queen to... But death remains the shadow that hangs over all of us, whether we see it or not. And the only one, the only one who has ever had an answer to death is Jesus Christ. If you've not put your trust in him, then I would just simply urge you to give some time in 2023 to investigating the credibility of his claims. There's nothing left on Netflix. Spend an evening reading one of the gospel accounts. And if you have then rejoice in the hope you have in Jesus. Allow that to colour how you deal with all the difficulties of this year, knowing that one day he will sit at his feast. And be generous. Share that good news with others. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing. Father God, we thank you that history has an end point, and it is a feast. Thank you that you have, in the Lord Jesus Christ, Swallow death for us so that we might not be eternally swallowed by it. Help us, I pray, to, uh, to find the truth of this, that we might live with its hope. And we ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.